278. Again, very good to see everyone with us this morning in these uh, very hard and, and trying times. But uh, we're here, thankfully, to uh, worship the Lord. And before we go into this lesson, uh, we're going to have the Scripture reading. And Brother uh, Oscar will be doing that Scripture reading for us. Uh, the Scripture reading today is uh, Mark chapter 16, <coughs> verses 1-11. I'm reading from the NIV, and my version says that the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. Uh, so 16, chapter 1 through 11. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of, or Jesus of Nazarene, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive, and that she had seen him, they did not believe him. Let me just add real quick in connection with that particular reading from that, uh, from that book, the book of Mark, that because it is not included in the book of Mark in some of the older manuscripts does not mean that this record is not factual because it is in the other accounts that we have of the Gospels. Um, <clears throat> so... There are several passages like that in the New Testament where some discount certain passages that uh, are not of the older manuscripts, but we look when we compare all the Scriptures together and we understand, of course, that this is an accurate account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, I'll, I'll just remind you what we've looked at to this point over the past two weeks in the lessons that I've brought. Two weeks ago, I brought a lesson on the unlawful trial of Jesus. And we we used the song, They Tried My Lord, song number 208 from the Sacred Selection book. Uh, prior to me presenting this lesson, how, how the Lord was illegally tried before the Sanhedrin. And the application, of course, that we made to this lesson was is that uh, He's tried before us daily and before all of mankind daily. And we make determination of who Jesus was, what He did for us, what, what He accomplished for us, and that He ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of God. We make determination. We pronounce Him either innocent or guilty. We make trial of Him 
the testing of Him daily. And by the way that we live our life, we either pronounce Him as true or we pronounce Him as false. We say, no, He's, he's not the Savior. But I think as we looked at that lesson, there's really no way to come to a negative determination as far as the judgment is concerned. He is the Savior of the world. Last week we looked at three crosses that were on Golgotha, on Calvary. We sang the song 315 just before that lesson on the cross of Calvary. There Jesus died for us. We understood, of course, that the cross that He died on was reserved for Him. No one else could go to that cross, but there were two other crosses that were there. One by a man that went to his death in denial of who Jesus was. And another one that went to his death with the understanding of exactly who Jesus was. That He had a kingdom. And remember, there was an inscription over the cross that Jesus had, which even though it was meant in derision, gave testimony of the truth that He is the King, not only the Jews, He's King of the world. And that third cross is where we need to find ourselves to become a child of God and to have our minds set firmly on following the King of all, that great and blessed potentate, King of King and Lord of Lords, as Paul mentions. And so we looked at that with the urging for each and every one that is not a Christian uh, to choose that third cross, the one where the man came around to understand who Jesus was, and also for those that once were Christians that have decided to go back up on that cross, entering back into the old world of sin once again, go on that cross once again and determine that you'll follow Jesus and come down from that. Today we look at the resurrection of Jesus. We just got through with the singing by Brother Greg. Song number 155, Up from the grave He arose. And I will tell you that if there is a one event, I believe it to be this event right here, resurrection, the one event that really solidifies everything concerning the truth, everything concerning God, everything concerning who Jesus was, everything about the Word of God, it is solidified, ratified, confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll talk more about that in just a little bit. But we're going to look at His resurrection because it is denied by so many today. And has been from the time that Jesus arose from the dead 2,000 years ago. So we're going to look at this from the standpoint, this grave that He came from, this resurrection, was it fact or fiction? And see not only what the Scriptures have to say, but also what men have said in connection with this. But of course make determination by that which is of the truth, that which is of Scripture. More we'll point out three things that we find, first of all, in Scripture about what the resurrection causes us to realize and was provided for us by Jesus forth coming from the grave. Up from the grave He arose. First of all, we find out in Romans, the first chapter, in verse 4, this, re this realization that each and every individual that will be saved must come to. That Jesus Christ is in authority. He is the Son of God. He is deity. And He is declared so by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1 and verse 4, declared to be the Son of God with power. And note that point right there. That shows the authority of Christ Jesus that He is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness that is the will of God. 
And that by, ratified by, that solidified by, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I will tell you, there, there, there are none that will accept truth. There will be none that will come to a determination of their own sin and in the degradation that they are in, being separate apart from God until that is understood. That is the power of Christ Jesus as shown forth by the resurrection from the dead. That's a realization that not only those that are not Christians must come to in order to be a Christian, but for Christians to accept day in and day out that He is the authority, He is the power. And that was shown forth and cannot be denied by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the first realization that, that must come to us. But also, we look at what is provided for us. And we see that in First Peter, the third chapter, verse 21. Where into the like figure where even baptism doth also now save us. That's the King James Version. Let me read what I have on the screen. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, now saves us. Not a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And where we look at this particular passage of Scripture, we understand what is provided for us. That appeal to God by and for a good conscience. And that is something that the atheists don't realize and don't think about. And I'm afraid that sometimes that those that aren't atheists but just will not come to the truth, will not become a child of God, they don't recognize what do you do what do you do with your sin? What do you do with your guilt except, except lay it on Christ Jesus? Except there be Christ Jesus, guilt exists and it continues. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews 8 chapter and verse 12 told of the new covenant that was coming. That is now present. That is the covenant of Christ Jesus. The gospel. His law that we're under today. And in that law, it states something much different than the Mosaic law states because there in verse 12 of Hebrews 8 chapter, the Hebrew writer said that new covenant would result in this. Their sins and iniquities, God said, I will remember no more. That is that appeal to God for a good conscience through baptism that saves us. There are those in the world that says baptism has nothing to do with salvation. Here it is very clear in Scripture. Baptism now saves us. It saves you. It saves me. And it is that appeal to God of a good conscience. In other words, that which is directed by the will of God, that which is directed by the Word of God. And all of that made possible by the ratifying event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But a third thing is there also that is pointed out by Peter in 1 Peter, it's in the first chapter in verse 3, where in his introduction to those that were scattered, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again, and that relates back to baptism, but born again, but now to a living hope made possible or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We live in this life and think about how things are going right now and, and the events that have taken place and, and you that are older can go back and you can point point out events that took place in your life. It may be 
Uh, it may be what took place in New York City in 2001 on September the 11th. Many of us here today remember that. Some of you don't. Um, some of you can remember back, of course, to the Oklahoma City bombing back in the 80s. Some of you remember that. Some of you don't. Go back to World War II. Uh, many of us don't remember that, but we, of course, have record of that. And we look at those events that take place and in this life. If there was no God, we could say really there was no hope with all these things taking place because those were all caused by the desires of men to have power and control and not be in subjection to the God of heaven. Every one of those events came about from that. And that's what this world would be like and, and there would be no hope except for Christ Jesus. So that with the resurrection... We have something better to look forward to because Christ Jesus came forth from the dead. So these are the three things I wanted to point out. One is a realization from Romans 1 and verse 4. The other two is that which is provided for us by what Christ did in coming forth from the grave. Up, up from the grave, He arose. I want to look now at what men have to say, these resurrection theories, and we'll comment on each of them. There are ten that I have listed here. We'll put these first two together, the unknown tomb by Charles A. Guggenbeyer and the wrong tomb theory by Chrysop Lake. And they made the statement, the point with the unknown tomb, Mr. Guggenbeyer says, Jesus was buried in a common pit unknown to the disciples. And that was his theory as why the resurrection couldn't take place. The wrong tomb was the disciples did not know where Jesus was buried and went to the wrong tomb. And so from either one of these or both of these, of course, they say legend took place, which we'll look at here in just a moment, but the, uh, the, the news spread from overzealous followers of Christ Jesus that he rose from the dead because they went to a tomb which wasn't his tomb. If they had gone to the right tomb, they would have found a body in there, but they say Jesus wasn't there because they were either at an unknown tomb or the wrong tomb. But we look at the Scriptures. And I asked the question, first of all, how did the women know where to go to prepare the body as recorded in Mark 16, chapter, verse 1 through 3? Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early the first day of the week they came to the tomb when the sun was risen. And they were saying among themselves, who shall roll away the stone from the door of the tomb? How did they know where to go in the first place? It would be foolish for them to wander around looking for a tomb that had stone rolled in front of them, because there were many of those, and then asking who's going to roll away the stone for us and not know which tomb to have the stone rolled away from. How foolish that is. And how was it that the disciples ran directly to the tomb after Mary came back and made presentation to them, gave the report to them that Jesus was risen from the dead? We look in John, the 20th chapter, verses 3 through 7. It says there, Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So Peter and John. So they both ran together and the other disciple out, did outrun John, John uh, outrun Peter. John outran Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then comes Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeing the linen clothes lie in a napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. 
Well, how did they know what tomb to, ro to what tomb to run to? And when they got there, they did not find just an empty tomb because there were the burial clothes that were present of Jesus Christ that had died and that had those burial clothes that were on him at the time when he was buried. And so what a foolish statement to make that they went either to an unknown tomb or a wrong tomb. Because Jesus was buried in an identified tomb. And we see that in Matthew 27, verse 57 through 61. Now when evening was come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And taking the body, Joseph wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, which is referred to back in John 20. Uh, and uh, took a clean cloth and placed it in the new tomb and when he had cut in the rock and having rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb he departed and Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave so those women know, knew exactly where to go, go and would tell even if the disciples didn't know where to go they could tell him at them rather what tomb to run to what a foolish, what a foolish speculation that is presented in these two particular theories. The tomb was known precisely because it was identified and everyone knew where that tomb was. But there are those that also say, well, this is nothing more than legend. This is by early critics, and the legend probably started with the Sanhedrin Council. We remember back in Matthew 27, 63-64, after the death of Jesus, and after he was taken to that tomb, that the Sanhedrin come to Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest haply his disciples come and steal him away and say unto the people he is risen from the dead. And the last error will be worse than the first. That is... We've killed now the king of the Jews. We don't want there to be a worse error than that. And someone say that he's risen from the dead. Well, think about what it was that they were asking. I'll get a side note here in just a moment. They understood where the tomb was. And again, everybody understood where that tomb was. But if there was anyone that ever wanted to start this particular legend theory that it was just a fabrication, the resurrection was just a fabrication, it would be the Sanhedrin Council. It's more than likely where it started. I want to point this out as a side note. The request by the Sanhedrin Council showed that they understood exactly what Jesus had said that the false witnesses brought up before the Sanhedrin. You remember? They said... The false witnesses said of Jesus, he said that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And we see that in a statement made by Jesus in John 2, verses 18 and 19. We understand that Jesus had told his disciples clearly of his death and resurrection. We see that in Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, from that time, and by the way, this is after Peter gave the good confession of Christ Jesus, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It says, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go off to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be the Sanhedrin, be killed, and to be raised the third day. And he was very clear in that statement about what would take place. He was told of his death, he told of his burial, he told of his resurrection. 
and is also recorded in Matthew 17, 22 through 23, and Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, and all of that before the disciples. But the only time that the Jewish leaders ever heard of Jesus talking about rising from the dead that we have record of is here in John, the second chapter, verse 18 and 19. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and as John goes on and explains, but he was not talking about the temple of the building, but he was talking about the temple of his body. They understood exactly what he was saying. And so this legend was certainly not started, uh, that, that it was a fabrication, not started by the disciples, but rather more than likely by the Sanhedrin and carried on and still thought today, just a, just a, a grand little fairy tale that was told. No, no, he came forth from the grave as we'll see here as we go on through this. And then there were others going all the way back to the second century and possibly even in the first century uh, the Gnostics that said, well, the resurrection was just something that was spiritual. And they had to say that because they did not believe that Jesus Christ, first of all, was deity. Um, and so the spiritual resurrection, they take that, the Gnostics took that from what John would have to say, that which was known at the time, in John the 20th chapter, verse 26. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, that is within a house, a building, a structure, and Thomas with them, Jesus comes, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. He passed through the door with the door being shut, and so from that the Gnostics, the real knowers of the day, those that had the true knowledge, they said, um, proclaimed then that Jesus was raised just in a spiritual resurrection, not a physical resurrection, dismissing then truly the resurrection of Christ Jesus. That he was spirit, and that was how he was able to pass through the door and come in and sit among the disciples at that time, wherever he discoursed with them. But we see that even before the death of Christ Jesus, that that Jesus had passed through the crowds, and we're not talking about just a small number of people, but multitudes. Luke the fourth chapter, verse twenty-nine through thirty, and this was when he was at the town where he grew up in Nazareth. And he had testified and then made accusation against those that would deny him. And it says there in verse 29 of Luke 4, And they rose up, that is the men of the town, the men of his hometown, and cast him forth out of the city and led him into the brow of the hill whereupon the city was built, that they might throw him down headlong. They were going to kill him right then. And it says, But he passing through their midst of them went his way. With a group of people like that, how in the world did he do that? Well, it certainly was miraculous. Was he, was he a spirit when he did that? No, he was not. He was physical. But he performed a miracle to get away from them. The very same thing takes place in John 8, chapter, verse 59, before the Jews. Remember that Jesus had said, back in verse 56 of John the 8th chapter, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad to see it. In verse 57, Jesus said that the Jews said, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And then Jesus says in verse 58, Before Abraham was, I am. Makes proclamation of his deity. In verse 59, then, they understood exactly what he was saying. They, he understood, they understood that he was saying, I am deity. I am God. I am your Lord. Verse 59, then, in John the 8th chapter, They took up therefore stones that they might cast at him, but Jesus hid himself. 
and went forth out of the temple going through the midst of them so they passed by again a great gathering that was there and I don't take the thought of uh, hiding himself to be as though he ran behind something but rather he passed through them and so we see the same thing in John the 10th chapter verse 39 therefore they sought again to take him but he escaped out of their hands and I'm going to say by implication with what we've looked at so far that would be that he passed through them in some miraculous way but after the resurrection of Jesus Christ Jesus invited people to touch him and he allowed to be touched and we see that in Luke the 24th chapter in verse 39. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see, for it is a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. And then in Matthew the 28th chapter in verse 9, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them all, saying, All hail, they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And not only that, we have other accounts that show uh, after his resurrection he ate food, and he makes the point, does a spirit do that? Does a spirit eat food? No, that was just a theory by the so-called knowers of the day that really knew nothing and rejected the truth about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then you have the hallucination theory by the agnostics, which include the agnostics of our day and then the existential resurrection by Rudolf Boltmann. And the hallucination theory states this, the disciples projected in their minds the great hope of Jesus' resurrection and thought they saw him. They hoped so much that he would come forth from the dead. They hoped so much that they had this thought in their minds so that it affected then their minds where they saw Jesus. Now let me just say something about that. First of all, that, that can't be because the, when the women returned back from the tomb back to where the disciples were and told them about the resurrection of Jesus they did not believe and they were not expecting to see Jesus resurrected they didn't believe and when we go back to Mark the 16th chapter Jesus upbraids them for their unbelief on the fact of his resurrection you did not believe what I say he defamed them he upbraided them in some versions because of their unbelief that he would come forth. He had told them that he would. Again, Jesus invited them to inspect his body. Behold my hands and my feet, that is myself, handle me. See, a spirit doesn't have flesh and blood. Jesus ate food with them in Luke 24, chapter, verse 41 through 43, which we already mentioned. And it wasn't a spirit, it wasn't a projection whatsoever. He was there physically with them in after rather the resurrection. This existential thought, the resurrection cannot be proven, it doesn't matter. Uh, Mr. Boltman says, he said, Jesus is resurrected in our heart. Well, it does matter. The physical resurrection is the only means of the existence of truth and the ratification of all that Jesus had said and all that the Father has said and all the, the word that has been confirmed before us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, declared to be the Son of God with power. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, verse 12 through 17, that Paul makes this, this argument about the resurrection of Christ. If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And all we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up. 
If so be that Christ rise, did not rise, for if the excuse me, if so be that the dead rise not, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, yet you are yet in your sins. And Paul here makes the point. It can't be something that took place, or just takes place in the heart. There had to be that physical resurrection for ratification of all things. All prophecy, all truth, all salvation, all forgiveness, all of who Jesus Christ was. And it had to take place in order for that to happen. And not just something that doesn't matter. No, it matters greatly. And the resurrection is factual. Then you have the Passover plot by Hugh Schoenfield. And the resuscitation theory or the swoon theory by 18th century rationalist. The Passover plot says a mock death went bad. The resurrected Savior was an imposter. <laughs> And so whenever you think about that, who in the right mind, first of all, would be crucified? And they say, no, 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 that's not it. There was a man walking around that said that he was the Savior. And let me just point this out. Wherever Jesus returned to Thomas, who said, I will not believe that the Savior is risen until I put my finger into the nail prints in his hand and I thrust my fist into the side where the sword pierced his side. I will not believe it. That when Jesus appeared to Thomas, that's exactly what Jesus invited him to do. Here is the nail prints in my hand. Come and feel them. Thrust your fist in my side so that you may believe. But blessed are those that do not see and believe, he says. And so when we look at that, we see that no, the imposter, if there was an imposter, he wasn't carrying, of course, the marks of Christ Jesus because he had not hung up on the cross. And then the swoon theory. He didn't die, he just fainted. Well, that's impossible because of the record of John the 19th chapter, verse 34. One of the, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. You remember that they went to the other, they went to the other two that were hanging on crosses there, the two thieves. And they broke the legs of the, of the two thieves so that they would die quickly because the Jews did not want them to be there overnight because of the Passover the next day. And so they came to Jesus and they saw that He was already dead and wherever they pierced His side, there came forth this blood and water. And Webster's Bible commentary makes this statement. Such a flowing of blood and water makes it probable that the Spirit reached the heart. And if Jesus had not before been dead, this would have closed His life. The heart is surrounded by a membrane called the pericardium. This membrane contains a serous matter or liquid or liquor, as it says here in some of the older terminology, resembling water, which prevents the surface of the heart from becoming dry by its continual motion. What came forth really showed forth death, that he was already dead. And so this particular thought, just a swoon theory that he came down, it was amazing that Jesus lived even to that point after being uh, flogged the way that he was, scourged the way that he was, but he did, and he hung up on the cross, and that is where he died. And he didn't just faint, he died. He passed from this life, and then prayed to the Father just before he did, receive my spirit. It is finished. And then you have the stolen theories. Um, one by the Jews of Jesus' day, and of course, stolen theories by others today. Stolen by the disciples while the guards slept, they say. John 20, chapter, verse 1 and 2. 
It says, Now on the first day of the week comes Mary Magdalene early while it was yet dark under the tomb. She runs therefore uh, and sees the stone taken away from the tomb and runs therefore and tells Simon Peter to, and the other disciples whom Jesus loved and says to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we know not where they laid him. Saw an empty tomb. And so they say, well, someone came in and stole the, tomb, uh, the, the body out. Uh, and some say, well, stolen by others other than his enemies. Well, certainly his enemies wouldn't want to steal his body. Uh, his enemies wanted people to know he was dead and he stayed dead. And that's what, of course, they came with, with theories such as this. Verse 20 and verse 13, They say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord. I know not where they have laid him. None initially believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But first, think about this. Think about Galilean fishermen or any of the Jews of that day overcoming trained Roman soldiers standing guard at that tomb. That is, that is just foolishness. Other than the disciples who would desire to create such a hoax. But it was not a hoax. Jesus came forth from the grave. And this was revealed to not only all those that were present there that day because He was seen among them for 40 days, but also later to one that had not been there, that is Paul himself, because this is the testimony of what had been given Paul by inspiration concerning the death and resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3-8 through 8, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, inspiration, the word coming to him from God, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, all that by prophecy, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under this present, but some are past or fallen asleep. And that He was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, He was seen of me also as a one born out of due time or due season. And Paul gives testimony of this, that this is not just a fairy tale. It's not just some hoax that took place, but rather it was absolute truth and verifiable by the multitude of witnesses that saw Christ Jesus after His death. Up from the grave, He arose. It is absolutely true. Men will always try to explain away God's truth. The resurrection is the fact and the basis of the meaning of life. Uh, whenever I was a young man back in the 60s, there were those that were looking to find themselves. What is, this, what is life about? I think there's probably still some doing that today. And we'll do that as long as this earth stands. What, what is life about? Well, it's about what Jesus Christ did for us in coming forth from the grave. When we look at Matthew 27, verse 50 through 53, Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks were rent, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints that had fallen asleep were raised. Stop right there. And came forth out of the tombs after his resurrection. Stop right there. That was a sign of this one that overcame death and was going to ratify what they saw wherever he rose from the dead. In Acts 4 and verse 33 says, And with great power gave the apostles their witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
and great grace was upon them all, they gave that testimony because they were eyewitnesses of the risen Savior. Philippians 3 and verse 10 and 11, Paul says that I may know Him, that is Jesus, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed unto His death, that is by baptism, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, which of course Jesus makes possible for each and every one of us. The absolute meaning of life is right here in connection with the coming forth of Jesus Christ from the dead, that resurrection, up from the grave, He arose. Thank God that He did. The resurrection was never intended as a yearly memorial. People have made it into that. We remember the Lord's death weekly on the first day of the week, Acts 20 and verse 7. And Paul makes mention, of course, what it is that we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper, coming down to verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11 chapter. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth or proclaim the Lord's death till He come. And we do that weekly. Because by His death and the shedding of His blood, we have forgiveness of sins. And that is not a yearly memorial, as some try to make it, but rather it is a weekly memorial. But His resurrection is to be remembered at all times, continually in our life, because He ratified everything for us in connection with forgiveness of our sins. The resurrection from the dead declared Jesus as the Son of God with power. The resurrection from the dead provides for us an appeal of a good conscience before God because baptism, that is a likeness of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, corresponds to this that now saves us. And by the resurrection from the dead, we have a hope of life eternal, not here upon this earth, but in heaven to come. Up from the grave He arose. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for doing that for us. To show forth who you are with power and to provide for us the forgiveness of our sins and to give us a hope that is greater than here upon this earth. Maybe those in the audience this morning that have not rendered obedience unto the Lord and have not become a child of God. What Jesus did when He went to that cross was for you. He lived His life for you here upon this earth to give you an example. He went through that trial that was unjust for you and opened not His mouth because what testimony? What witnessing do you give of absolute purity? There's nothing to say. There was no response to all the false things that were said. Because none of them were true. There was no reason to respond to that. He went to the cross for you to die for your sins. He shed His blood for you in order for you to receive that forgiveness of sins. And then He came forth from the grave to ratify every aspect, including the hope that is before us. And so if you're not a child of God this day, Please get in touch with one of the men that is listed here, especially the, the, the shepherds of our congregation. And let it be known that you want to be baptized. All things are ready in connection with that. The water is ready at the building. We will meet you there. I'll turn the air conditioning on just like we did here just not very long ago for one that came to the Lord. And then there may be those in the audience this morning 
that at one time rendered obedience to the Lord, but they've not been serving the Lord. What they've done, they went back up on that cross of that thief that met, that reviled Jesus. And they're reviling Him by living in their past way of life. Come down from that cross. Ask forgiveness of your sins. And He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness when you make confession of wrong. And you have brothers and sisters that are here to pray with you and for you for that forgiveness, to be restored once again into that relationship with your Lord, to be in fellowship with Him and to be walking in the light as He was in the light. Up from the grave, Jesus rose. I'm asking you, if you're not a child of God or if you have fallen away from the Lord, will you come up out of your grave because you're in a dead condition and respond to this Gospel call? At this time, we'll be led in our closing song.